so you turn and you face what you've got and you think, okay, survival of the fittest, is it? No good having love here. Yeah, it's a weakness. Yeah, you'll, you'll die if you try to talk love around here. Yeah, and then you just become who you are. Touch me, you're getting a, you're getting a shiver in your heart. You come near me, you know, you'll get a baseball bat out of your head. That's not happening to me, what they did to me. You're not doing it to me either, mate. Young soldier of God. Steady march. Yeah. Steady um, march. My full name is uh, Fakete Taito. Steady march. So Fakete, everybody just calls me Fakete. And um, my nickname was Feats. Uh, back in the day. Um, from uh, my parents, both parents, uh, mum and dad from Samoa. My mum's from a district called Ana, and her village is called Valutei. And my father's from the, the great village, the district of Valiarili, and the village is Kafkafa. Um, and, but I was born here um, in, in central Auckland and grew up in Ponsonby and Greyland. Yeah, like... Uh, like most of our uh, Pacific Island families, eh? they came here. My parents would have been the first, yeah, migrated here in the 50s, um, along with a whole lot of other Pacific Islanders, eh? and um, found found the little community in uh, Greyland, Ponsonby, and in central Auckland. There's other areas like Newton, uh, Kingsland, uh, but yeah, in the main Greyland and Ponsby, and it was just it was beautiful living in that in those times, eh? You know, because just a whole sea brown, you know, a sea of brown faces everywhere, up at Ponsby Road, all the way Williamson Avenue, up into K Road, just all our people walking, doing shopping, everyday things, you know, and yeah, so it was a uh, yeah, it's great. It was great growing up in that yeah, in that area. My dad was a water cider down the wharf, and my mum was a nurse. Um, and she worked at the children's hospital, the children's ward at the Auckland Hospital. And she did night shift. She did night shift, um, usually finished around six in the morning. She started at about 10, 11. So uh, my parents, my dad worked in the wharf over 20, 25 years, I think he was originally he was at um Hallaby's, uh, the corned beef and uh, super. So, yeah, he was um there, and then he changed uh, at some time when I was young, I can't remember, but um, yeah, pretty much growing up, I just remember him being a water cider. I went to school, you know, at Richard Road Primary, I started off there until. Standard three, I don't know what they call that now in terms of year, but um, I got to standard three, and when I moved to intermediate, um, my parents decided to move me over to um, Marist, Marist uh, Brothers Catholic uh, Convent in uh, Ponsonby. And um, yeah, and so the difficulty for, I guess, for my parents. And I guess for a lot of Pacific Island parents at that time was the was they moving from a village, a, a small country, a village-like environment to an urban setting in a foreign country. And, you know, it, the difficulty in trying to navigate their pathway through a, 
for a country that foreign language and different different culture, different um, um, ways of uh, of bringing up. And I suppose uh, for me, my my father's uh, discipline, strict discipline, um, got the better of me. I guess you, you one could say. And I started um, yeah playing up at um, intermediate and was starting to run away from that sort of stuff. And then by the time I was like 13, um, I had done it quite a bit. And so now the police were aware of me and so were the social welfare. And then, you know, inevitably they uh, started picking me up. And eventually, yeah, they, um, they took me back a few times, tried me in foster care, and then in the end they they made me a state ward and jammed me into uh, into Oraraka Boy Zone. I think that was about 1976. They actually tried, the courts tried to send me back to Samoa. Well, they actually sent me back to Samoa. It was a, um, it was quite, it was quite a thing. Um, judges uh, hearing about how, you know, kids in Samoa were, in the islands were brought up in a very strict uh, discipline and uh God-fearing sort of way, and and they felt that that might work, so they took me back to my dad took me back to Samoa for that, and um, yeah, nah, that didn't work. Um, they brought me back, and yeah, so by the time yeah I was fourteen, I was in the care of of, of, of social welfare, and and I had done a few couple of stints in um, Oraraka Boys Home. Which was, you know, my first one was uh, they stuck me, or they stuck me to secure both times. But yeah, secure was a bit of an eye opener for me. Uh, there were cells rather than dorms, and you were yeah, they got you out of bed uh, six in the morning, do your do your stuff up and your beds up, and oh, they get you up six in the morning and you start running around this yard. At a time, sometimes beefy, and they just make you run around this yard, run around this yard, and yeah, just until they told you to, to stop, go for a shower. Um, yeah, there was a during that one time uh, that you know during the shower, um, one of the house they called them housemasters, the ones that look after you. Yeah, he came in and uh, tried to drive me off, you know, and tried to. But as a kid, you know, you have been on the street. You know, your survival instinct kicks in here and you're like, he's trying to hold the towel out to you just to say, come and I'll dry you. you know, you're looking at him, and, but you know, there's, there's something not right here. You know, I say, oh, no, 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 just pass me the towel. And, uh, you know, he, his comment was, oh, a shy one, eh? And he threw a towel to me. But those were the sort of things that were happening in there. And unfortunately, you know, unfortunately for some of my... Uh, my bros in there, eh? you know, they they were, you know, you know, they were sexually abused and how how were the how were the workers and how were, like the the officers and that and the the boys' homes like that you experienced over the next few years and those housemasters? Yeah. Yeah, how were they? Yeah. Yeah. They, they, yeah, there were some good ones, but a whole lot of bad ones. You know, and um one of the one of the things they used to get us to do was the Sunday boxing game. I don't know if they called it Sunday boxing, but I remember 
one of the survivors naming it, uh, uh, Sunday Boxing, was, you know, for me at the time when they said it, I went, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe that's what they used to call it. But they put us up against other other boys, you know, the Screws, the Housemasters, and, yeah, for their enjoyment, you know, they just watch us punch each other up and not step in unless the one that they want to win was losing. <laughs> and then they step in and the one that's beating them, they throw them into secure. That sort of shit they were doing to um, to the boys, eh? To the young boys, to us young fellas, and um, backing on to Oeraka Boys Home, the front of uh, the place in Oeraka Ave, they used to have houses, and that's where all the housemasters used to stay. And you know, used to work behind their places. And one time when I was working there. Not long after I got there, or yeah, got familiar with the place. I asked one of my mates, "Oh, what is um? How come he's allowed to go into the house and clean the house? How do we get that number?" And my mate said, "Bro, you don't want that job." I said, "Hey, nah, you don't want to go in there, bro." It wasn't until later on I realised that that's where the abuse was happening. It's the sexual abuse. They were taking vulnerable, you know, we're all vulnerable kids, but they were taking the most, the least, you know, the most vulnerable ones. They were taking them in there and, you know, doing their bullshit on them, you know, and um, abusing them. And so, yeah. So that was a, an environment, I guess, you know, for me, looking back at that, there was an environment there that, that had really been created, you know, that, you know, we were, we walked into that. You know, into, into an environment with our own innocence, I guess, you know, and um, we walked in there and then all that is around you. Um, guys are teaching each other how to, no, no, this is how you jump the cars and, you know, oh, you know, these locks and, you know, and, and all, you know, everybody's talking crime and how to do this, how to do that, how to survive on the street. And so... For me, looking back at it, eh, you know, that's all, you know, that environment was, you know, a whole lot of... Um, um, a breeding ground. Yeah, like breeding ground, but more importantly, I think it's more, um, yeah, breeding growing up in that environment was just, nobody's talking about, oh, my dad's a lawyer, or my, oh, my dad's an accountant, or, um, you know, where, you know, all you hear is like the dads, all our dads are working class men who, you know, who are trying, especially with, um, uh, and for, 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 we, we just, the brown boys always come together, together, you know, like, and I, and I think back at it and people think that because all the bad things that are happening to us are, are coming from white housemasters, parkour housemasters, and, done to us, you know, even the principal, his name was Rickett of the place, he was, he was a bad man, you know, punching over, you know, smacking kids, you know, literally punching them and booting them. He booted me in the backside once as I was walking out the door. He's, yeah, yeah. So when you have a principal of a, of a place doing that, it enables all those housemasters to do whatever. But those experiences in the boys' home, bro, was just, yeah, it was like 
and where they take you out, and then you end up in foster care, where more views are, and and you know you have to anything you want, like we have to talk to the parent, uh, to the house parent, and in this case, Betty Walk from Aranui Hostel, they were running a lot of. Uh, she ran a few houses in the central Auckland area, and possibly as well. And but she had, uh, she was looking after mainly adult prisoners coming out, and that was my first sort of interaction with um, with gang members. You know, or well, yeah, like fully seeing Patch was at these houses and thinking, oh hell, yeah, you you hear the kids talking about black power. My dad's in it, my uncle's in it. By uh, you know, different family members are in it, and you picture it, you know, and you think, oh yeah, because you see in the pictures on TV or, you know, but then they're right there with you. You go, well, that's it there, you know. It's like, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> These guys are pretty good. They're pretty cool. <laughs> so yeah, I was uh, introduced to that in about '77, seeing them once I was in uh, in Betty's care. Yeah. And so, yeah, I saw, um, that's why I ran into a few of the blacks, uh, knockers, gypsy. I ran into them in those places. They were a bit older than me, but, um, yeah, social welfare just needed somewhere for me to be able to stay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was my problem, staying in one particular place. Because I would run away from everywhere, run away from home, run away from any place they put me at. And... Because our favourite place we were when the street kids were underneath the Grafton Bridge. There was winter, there was us underneath there for for sleeping. You know, it's funny, eh? Because we, we were on the streets together and then we'd, somebody would disappear, somebody else would disappear, we all disappear, and then we'd get the boys say, Oh, oh, did they get you? Well, what were you happy to use? They said, ah, yeah, they got me. And they, you know, so we were all meeting up again and as we're all getting caught and plucked off by uh, the state. And, then, uh, and that's the sort of life I had until I started my first morsel, yeah, youth prison. Well, you were introduced to like the, the Polynesian Panthers around this time as well. Yeah, yeah. So the Polynesian Panthers, I, 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 yeah, I, I met them because those days as street kids, we were always looking for abandoned council houses. The city council had abandoned warehouses and graves there everywhere around the city. And we were able to, you know, we go, oh, yes, yeah, this is a council house and we'll park up there until somebody complained and we'll take off. So next door to the Polynesian Panther place in uh, our headquarters in Redmond Street, they were number 14, number 12, I think, or 16, where I was in the abandoned house. and So we were parked up there. We were hiding off in there and then... Um, we were there for a couple of nights and then one of the guys, one of the kids went, oh my God, look, there's all these gang members next door. And we kept up to the window, there was no window, but just, you know, we had a look and we saw these guys in berets, black berets and afros and we go, holy shit. And I saw like, I saw a couple of guys and I recognised them from church and, and I, oh God, they, those guys came to our church, this, I think those are our cousins, that's my cousins. And there was uh, uh, Alec and Wayne, 24. Afterwards, we were watching them having a feed, and afterwards, when they all left, I thought everybody had left. 
but I didn't realize that Lungi used one of the, it was one of my, you know, we became good friends after this. He was a panther, he was living next door and he was looking after the place as well. But I snuck in behind there and, uh, yeah, <laughs> the back door was open, there was food on the so I grabbed it and took it back to the kids. It was uh, six of us there at the time and we were all eating it because they, it was corned beef. And then in the, the Māori Zayn said, oh, what's that food they're eating, that red meat? And I went, no, no, that's called bisupo, that's what we have. And he went, hey, what's that? That's in those cans, eh? And I went, yeah, 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 no, it's good, man. So when I went out, I got some, I brought it over and we're eating it and then we heard this big, booming voice. <laughs> hey, you guys! And we looked up and it was this big dog and guy. <laughs> but Afro was lucky and he was like, Hey, don't eat to steal food. You'll come ask us. We were like, oh, yeah, okay, sorry. And so I went out and said, sorry. He goes, what's your name? And that's how I got in there. You know, he said, tell the kids come. And we all went in. And he said, have some drink. And he said, don't, don't steal. We're the Panthers, you know, and blah, blah. We're all the same as you. What who are you? Samoan? I went, yeah, I'm a Samoan. He went, yeah, where are you? Raro? He said, yeah, we all try to help me. So they, he's trying to tell us in his uh, broken English, you know, what they do there. We went, oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, in my head was, I'm not going to tell him anymore because I don't want him to tell Alec and wait the Tony that I was there. But anyway, that started the relationship with me and the Panthers. And so, yeah, over the years after that, I, I well, not long after that, I met um, Tingi Nama. Tingi Nama became my... My father, my parents, I call uh, I call them. They, they they from that day on was like I met them when I was fourteen, and I just kept going back everywhere I ran away from. I went back to their place and back to the Panthers. So we did things like um, I helped them uh, give out your rights with the police cards <laughs> along K Road before the Pacific Island because you know obviously the dawn raids was uh, happening and and. Um, the dawn range was happening and um, the Panthers had, I think, a little brown cards and they said, you're right with the police. And I used to get a, group, a bunch of them from uh, the Panthers and go around on Thursday night because it was uh, gay wrong shopping. <laughs> on Thursday night it was just, oh, just, you couldn't move in K Road. Just so many of our people doing shopping and oh, it, was, it was crazy. But at the same time, the task force was a team policing unit who were really, um, you know, um, out in force with their racist policies of, you know, just grabbing our people and getting their names and asking them for passports and throwing them in the wagon if they didn't have any identity and all that. So my job was just to give a hand out as many of those things to your rights in the police. So I used to do that. But then the cops would see me doing that and they'd try, and they'd try and get me out and I'd be running down sides. You know, they, they'd never catch me in Central Auckland, but yeah. So that was my little game with them at, you know, doing that sort of stuff. <clears throat> but in between in that, I was at Betty Walks and so they, they were all involved in politics. So I got tied up in all those sort of um, uh, activities and Betty took me up to Bas uh, Takaparafa, to Bastion Point. Um, I, 
through um, her, we got jobs at what they called the Ponsonby Labour Co-op. So the Panthers introduced me, Tingi, in particular, Ama with Māori issues. So her name's, uh, well, Tingi Launis and Miriama Rohi. Miriama, mother, has passed on now, but um, she taught me heaps. And so, and especially around Māori, and especially about women. Women was a big thing about, you know, she always jumped into me about respecting the woman and don't you ever let me hear that you are disrespectful. <laughs> yeah, 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 you know. But I had, you know, four sisters, I one sisters, so, you know, mother, they loved me. So, you know, I I had a lot of um, respect for women, you know, growing up in that. But, um, yeah, so as I started going in that journey, I think it's 78, Kenya, I think that's where I saw, um, yeah, that's where a lot of my mates had, who were in the boys' homes with me and I'd been on the streets. A lot of them had become members of either the mob or the blacks or prospecting for the mob or the blacks. Waikiria youth, uh, youth, it's a youth prison. There's, I think there's, at the time, there's like 500 young people in this and everybody around you are talking about gangs and, you know, and, you know, and you see some, some violence and you say, yeah, he's with the blacks or, yeah, he's with the mob. Bro, and you know, in your head is, wow, I wouldn't mind being, you know, being with that dude, man. He's got some, he's got some styles, <laughs> you know. So, you know, so um, a couple of my good mates were in the mob um, um, and, and I um, met nigga John down there, Roy, Wangtang, Toko Money, all these guys, you know, they just become part of your life growing in that world, you know, and um, yeah. But I had heard that the King Godwins were were up and, you know, were starting, were, were happening in uh, in, our, in my in my hood. So yeah, I got out and uh, had a look and I said, yeah, because, you know, heaps of Pacific boys in there, and especially from that hood, and you know them, you you know. So, yeah, that, that, that was me then, you know. I'm not going to say I'm a, an expert about the history of the King Cobras, but the King Cobras went through some different stages, but they were always there, you know, around Ponsonby, Greyland. Um, and so the chief that... That's there now, the the, the Koinga is, um, I won't mention his name, but everybody understands what I'm talking about. The Koinga was free right throughout that era. So um, they went through different stages, I, I feel, uh, uh, along the way. Um, lots of things happened, you know, uh, jail, a lot of them went to jail and boys' homes as well. Um, so, you know, they went through a, a lull period and then came back up again and then a lot of them started up at Junior Next. There was other different uh, gangs in, in central Auckland that were starting up. But in the main, the King Cobras have always been, they, they've always been involved with all that. And then they came up again in 1978. Um, yeah, so when they started again in 1978, um, 1979, 
And moving forward, we were just, yeah, became members and and that was in the central area. It was funny because we had chapters everywhere. We had, in central Auckland, we had Newton, who were predominantly Tongans. We had um, Ponsonby, Grey Lynn, Kingsland um, chapters for, for central Auckland. So, yeah, so, yeah, moving forward, obviously it became bigger and bigger. And, and yeah, so by the time uh, I was involved in a lot of that activism, still getting involved with the Panther stuff, and by the time 1981 came around, the Springbok tour, everybody was starting to gear up for the Springbok tour. Um, yeah, it was... Uh, yeah, it was pretty much full on Alcoinga at that time. Also gave us blessings to be part, you know, because these are things that, you know, gang members don't get involved with, you know, so-called gang members. But, <clears throat> you know, some of, some of us are very, you know, we were passionate about rights, not only for Indigenous, but for, for ethnic minorities, not just here, for all around the world. But it was that year too, 1981, that um, uh, we were hearing that the skinheads were starting to stand up in, the, in, in, in Auckland. And, you know, from 1980 to 1981, there were little running battles between some of our boys and, and some of them everywhere around the city. And, you know, it got, got to the point where Hey, is this is this going to become a problem? <laughs> is this becoming a problem? Or <laughs> that sort of attitude, you know, that sort of all right, what's happening? And then um, one night they caught one of our local boys. Yeah, gave him a bit of a touch up and scarred his yeah, scarred him up for a blade and so yeah. So I was like, oh yeah, okay. They took it to another level. Oh, all right. Yeah. So uh, me and a handful of uh, uh we 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 went down for a mediation uh, corridor with them, and it it didn't turn out very well. And I ended up doing three years for uh, GBH. Um, yeah. Well, you know, it sort of put the handbrake on them. Uh, becoming any bigger in this uh, in the city, I, um, in my opinion, <laughs> and so yeah, so I was out on bail when all that stuff happened with the Springbok tour for that GBH, and so yeah, I got a lag for the GBH, and on top I got I got the lag for um, for the Springbok tour too. I was young, I was like. I think I was only 19 or 20 and then at this stage and I I'm so glad that I had that whakapapa you know with, I've had the background whakapapa with the boys in jail and in my life up until that stage because that really really helped when it came to all of us going to jail because you know there was a lot of anger in jail as you oh, well, you you know, as you can imagine, the inmates were pissed off because while they're watching the game, these guys from the they called themselves 
the H Block Committee. They were supporters of the IRA here in Aotearoa and a bunch of mischief white boys, but they went and cut the cable for Waiataro uh, transmission. Oh, I was bumped up with a mobster named uh, oh, Nigga John, and we were bumped up in the East Block, and he said to me, Bro, so your mates came. I said, What mates? He says, Those guys that cut the bloody transmission, they're bloody upstairs there. Everybody wants to kill them. <laughs> I said, Oh, what? So in the morning, I got the screws to unlock me first, early, about quarter to six before everybody else. And I says, take me upstairs to these guys. So they took me upstairs and they unlocked these guys and they were, these two was in the cell together, they were just like, they thought that was it, that was it, because they'd be waiting for it. You know, they'd been there for maybe three days together. I walked in and I said, are you guys for their way out or anything? And they said, yeah. I said, I'm with the Patu squad. Oh, are you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, mate. I says, look, they're going to lock us up for breakfast soon. Come down and have breakfast. And they went, you sure? I said, yeah, you'll be okay, you'll be okay, you know. So, uh, yeah, so that was my life, like, um, moving forward. Um, I, yeah, I just, just immersed myself in the, the King Cobra um, life, game life. And, and we, yeah. It was, you know, it was what it was, eh? Moving forward, um, loved the brothers. You know, in a lot of sense, you know, the brothers, uh, the club reconnected me with, back with my Samoa because I was really like that with it. You know, it was like, for a long time for me, it was, I was, you know, just being a gang member. And, but, yeah, so me and um, me and the club, we we. we we parted the ways back in 90, I think it was 91. I'd been in the club for just over 12, maybe 13 years. And, um, yeah, moving on and trying different things. And, yeah, um, always always on the edge, you know. Always, we're always on the – always thinking about, you know, how to survive you know. So, yeah, so done a few big lags in the 90s. You think that, you know, sometimes you, you, you say to yourself, oh, that's all good, man, you know, it's like, fuck it is what it is, you know. We are what we do, you know, and there's the consequences of some of the, some of our activities, eh? We always know, you know, if you're in that world, you always know that the jail will be the hazard of the, of the job, um, or death, you know, those are always going to be the hazard of the job or of that particular environment. You know, uh, an old crim friend of mine, he said to me, uh, you know, bro, if you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you say to yourself, oh, I can't do another leg, you should get out of it. That's when you should get out of it. And the reason why his rationale behind that is that because if that's what your thoughts are, if that's what you're thinking, the next time you get caught, you're going to talk. You know, so he said, so always remember that. When you get up in the morning, you look in the mirror, and you think you can't do another leg, get out of the business. He was taught, you know, he was, um, he's one of the old school inmates way back, and I sort of caught the end of that old school inmate attitude. Don't talk to screws and all that sort of stuff, you know. I, I remember doing the legs in the 70 and 80, 
man, you just couldn't talk to a screw without getting yeah, getting a visit the next morning or that later that afternoon, you know? You just not even to say hello. It was just unheard of, you know? And so the screws themselves, they knew this too. They they'd say hello to you, you know, you just it was like just do your job, you know, and and I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll take any criticism over this, but arguably, I think the Pacific Island inmates have changed, have changed a lot of the way prison environment has changed. A couple of things for me is that a lot of our Pacific people, their culture, their way of life, is underpinned by God and the Bible and, and church and there's nothing wrong with that. But in an environment like jail, when they tell the truth to the screws, you know, for us, older ones, for the old days, for the old ways, like, bro, fucking naki? What the hell? It's strong too. You know, our, our, our boys in there, you know, they're very strong. You know, they're very strong physically, they're very strong mentally, and especially if um, you pick on, you know, our own. Because, you know, for a long time there, we were a minority in there, and, and, and in some cases still are. But we will band together to help each other out, you know. I think for myself, you know, like, we reflect back on the 35 38, maybe yeah, good part of 40 years in that life. There was lots of things that um, I I regret doing, um, but I understand why I've done it, if that makes sense. You know, it's like going back to the state, the way the state looked after us, you know, that, that is a big one for me because you know, for all that state care, there's just no love shown, there's no care, there's no, um, you know, as children, eh, I guess, as children, that's something you should always um, give them, you know, where they one, four, eight, you know, to a point where they learn you know, if you teach your children how to love properly and be, and be caring of other people in their spaces, no doubt when they become an adult, whenever that is, 18, 20, they'll, they'll also have those values as well. And just, it automatically goes down to your, to your grandchildren, if they have any. And so when you miss that, when you miss that, you know, you start to create your own vision, and I've said this sometimes. Uh, 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 I've said this at different places in time. Is that you start creating your own vision of love, and then how does that look like in your eyes? You know, and and sometimes you know it's uh, it was really difficult for me to to say that word and to talk about that um, because you know. It wasn't part of my environment growing up, you know. In, in, in particular, um, you know, your formative, your formative years, 
And, uh, you know, as a child growing up, my mother, my sisters might disagree, <laughs> but I was her favourite. She loved me, you know, she, she, you know, she showed me all the love a mother could, you know. And, um, but, you know, by the time I got to stay here, you know, and by the time you're in those environments, that love is not constant no more. And it becomes a distance. Then it becomes no more. You don't hear your mum anymore because now she's, she's gone, you know. And so you turn and you face what you've got and you think, okay, survival of the fittest, is it? Yeah. No good having love here. Yeah, it's a weakness. Yeah, you know, you will die if you try to talk love around here. So yeah, so you you harden your heart, you harden your soul, you harden your mind. Yeah, and then you just become who you are. You know, you their pathway's taking you. So you know, you're walking down a pathway. You know, it's safe here, and everybody's going here. Nobody's going there. Everybody's going there, and you're going there. And if you think about mainstream society, that that's the same, mate. You know, like your family, you follow your parents, <laughs> do what your parents do, and in the main, it's very good things and you know, love and all the kind things. And but in that environment, stay there. There's nothing, and there's nobody showing you this, and so. With you and a bunch of thousands and thousands and thousands of boys are just creating your own environment, you know, based on how you were treated. And so when you when you get abused, when you're getting, you know, picked on and bullied and you create, you know, you always hear this around survivors, you know, we're resilient. That's where the resilience comes from. That's from being pushing back against that because you get to an age you go cough no more <laughs> touch me you're getting a you're getting a shiver in your heart <laughs> you know you come near me you know you get a baseball bat out of your head you you know it just becomes you know fact that's not happening to me what they did to me you're not doing it to me either mate <laughs> you know and then even to the cops, you know, you know they, they, you know, the cops unfortunately don't understand the background of a lot of uh, Alfano, especially in the gang world, but not in gang world, but in the whole criminal scene. A lot of them come from a pathway of state care, you know, and then when they take them outside a pub just to get their names and address, they don't understand. To us, to us, they have been in their world. That's antagonistic. You know, you're, fuck, I was just sitting here having a beer and you're fucking pulling me out. You know, and you think about you, you stay care, and they're just pulling you out and just dictating to you. You know, you just, they can I have a word with you? You know, straight away, what for? Last time I had a word with you, I ended up in the boys' home. Last time I had a word with you, I ended up in the, the watch house. Last time I had a word with you, now fuck you, I don't want to talk to you. All right, you're under arrest. You know, it's just, you know, it just becomes that sort of relationship. Yeah, listen, you know, for, for people that have <laughs> done a lot of our, um, have been down our pathway, and there's a lot more doors open now, eh?
there's a lot more uh, our people out there trying to do right, you know, do good things and heal our people. Um, for me, you know, you, you, I, I, 2010, I had been doing P for about 10 years by then. I, I just got myself off it with my partner. And that's the strength thing, is when you got a strong partner, you know, who, who changed the way I love. You know, she taught me a different meaning of love and the way to love, you know, until the support's there. And a lot of our whanau in that in the gang and criminal environment, they, they don't have that. But that is that is key, you know, to surround yourself with people that really love you like your kids and but for those that who um are still struggling and still wanting to come to terms with what happened to them, there's a lot of our whanau out there now doing that money. Yeah, you, you know, you've got the Hikoi Nation, you know, who helped uh, put that gang hui together. You've got Unity in Our Community, which is up there. You know, these are all organisations that have our people, if you like, you know, the gang whanau. And then you've got the Grace Foundation, uh, David, Natalia and them. So you've got a lot of people doing these sort of mahi now that have been there and done that. But, you know, still, we need, still need to push uh, for more of that to happen, for all those resources to be, you know, reinvested into those organisations to help them. And these are the people that, you know, for those of us that are, that are struggling, that are, you know, want to look to heal, you know, absolutely at any time you can reach out if I can help you in any way, you know, just in the abuse and care, we have an 0800 number, 0800-222-727. Um, if you want to talk directly to me, just tell the call centre there, ask for me, give your name and a, a number, and, you know, um, I'm happy to, you know, take your call. The biggest thing I find in state care is that our, our, all our whanau that's been in state care haven't separated the trauma. So they work and they live and they with trauma every day of their lives. You know, and I, and that affects the way they behave, it affects the way they do things. And so, you know, for me, if we can, if we can start to heal a lot of their trauma moving forward, you know, it'd be great, it'd be great all around for this country, for Aotearoa, for ourselves first, for our communities, our whanau, our communities, and, 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 and in general, you know, it will help right across this country, you know, about um, how we how we treat our vulnerable, uh, our vulnerable, and that's they always say that, right? They always say, you know, a society is always measured by the way they treat their vulnerable, and right now, you know, our vulnerable aren't being treated right. You know, our our children, even today as we speak, they're in state care aren't being looked after, you know, and, and so we need to change that. And that's why the Royal Commission is important, to be a voice, to be a vehicle for those voices. And so, therefore, we can make strong recommendations to, to the government about how they should care for our children moving forward because, you know, 
without those voices to tell us, we can't just we can't just make this up. <laughs> you know, what we put in our reports and what we put in our recommendation reflects the voices that we heard. And we understand that it's hard for people to come forward. And that's that's fine, you know, but um, there are different ways we can engage with our uh, survivors. Um, yeah, reach out to me if you if you if you want to do that. But you know, be strong, be strong. Uh, uh, those that have uh, come in our way and are trying to find their way through all this trauma and haze, reach out to people, ask for help, learn to love, love well. And, you know, it just be at peace. You know, sometimes it's really hard. Um, when you get angry and frustrated and sometimes just try to find a find you know, find a space in your head just for that peace. And go there and just sit there and, you know, sometimes think about things and, you know and be strong in yourself. There's hope. There's always hope.